Well, I guess we could, uh, we could summarise tonight's passage in a single verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Tonight we see there is birth, there is death, and there is life. It's a passage that has been uh, actually been playing on my mind since last summer. You know, they say about how at parties people end up in the kitchen. Well, uh, there was an afternoon last summer where I ended up at the bottom of the stairs here. Uh, It hadn't been a party, um, but Jigsaw had gathered and watched the video of uh, Prince of Egypt or something like that. Was that right? Yeah, was that video? I was thinking, um, which story of Joseph was it? Prince of Egypt. And I had a conversation with Don and Richard, and Charlie might have been there too, or we were sort of going about. And we were talking about how Jacob goes to Egypt, and there's Jacob, and there's the sons, But where's the mums? What's happened to them? And of course, this is what's happened to one of the mums. This is Joseph and Benjamin's mother dying. Rachel is dead. In Genesis 49, we discover that uh, Leah has also died. And she's buried in the same place where in this passage, Isaac is buried and later where Jacob will be buried too. I chose this passage for tonight um, because of its beautiful partnership with where we were this morning with the birth of Esau and Jacob and um, their first uh, struggles with each other. It, uh, it brings a partnership together and they, they both form part of the great story of God's chosen people. But there is far more to this passage than two funerals and a birth. You know, it's not um, simply another episode in the soap opera, um, that everyday story of country folk or of country folk in the Middle East. At least. This morning we heard how Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob and that made a disharmonious family relationship. This evening we see what leads to a disharmonious family relationship one generation on. But we also see something of that previous disharmonious relationship coming back together. A completion of one story and maybe the start of another. We see uh, the story that leads to Jacob's preference for Joseph and for Benjamin. 
which in time takes us to the purchase of a special coat and a father's reluctance in a time of famine to allow his youngest to travel from Canaan down into Egypt. One might think that uh, Jacob would have learned from the story of his own childhood, his own youth, his own early years, that having a favoured son, one that you love far more than the others, or an other, is not a healthy thing for a family. But here there seems to be a reason given for that happening in Jacob's life again, for his sons. And it's because of Rachel. You see, to Jacob, there was never supposed to be a Leah who was his first wife, nor a Zilpah, nor a Bilha. It was meant to be Rachel who was his wife. It was meant to be Rachel who would be the mother of his children. But he got caught out by his uncle Laban, who became his father-in-law. And then at the insistence of his wives, he slept with their servants. Which although increasing the number of descendants, and maybe that's a positive thing, if we have got to see that thing about as many as the stars in the sky or as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. Um, but it also increases bitterness and it introduces rivalry in the family. And this is just as had happened in the story of his grandfather, Abram, with Sarah and Hagar. Mistakes in families often occur again and again and again. Mistakes in life can happen again and again and again. The Bible shows us a number of relationships that are adulterous or bigamous or polygamous relationships. And these are some of the key people in the scriptures. But just because these people like patriarchs, like Jacob, act in this way, it doesn't mean it's God's intention. Far from it. Each time we see a relationship like this, it causes great heartbreak. It causes tears. It causes disunity. God's intention is frequently seen to be either celibacy or monogamous marriage. God still uses those individuals that are in a different sort of relationship in relationships that don't fit this pattern. He loves them. He loves the world such that he gave his son. He cares deeply for each. But we don't always live by his intention. 
Jacob favours the sons of Rachel because he favoured Rachel because there only was Rachel in his life. The words don't express it here, but favouring those two sons is a way that he can hang on to that wife that he dearly loved. Meanwhile, of course, there's ten other sons, not to mention the daughters. And his relationship with them becomes increasingly strained. And we see this in the passage with Reuben, the first son of Leah, sleeping with Bilhah. Now, of course, the sons of Jacob had some time earlier, following the rape of their sister Dinah by Shechem, expressed their distaste of going uh, against sexual purity. And so we might be really surprised by the action of the eldest son, Jacob, uh, son of Jacob. This is a sexual assault. But there's also another issue going on here. There's another thing happening. This act is like the young man in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, who goes to his father and says, give me my inheritance. What we have in sleeping with Bilhah is a statement by the son who has the birthright of Jacob that his old man is past it. It is a power play. It is a, oh, I'm glad, hopefully Dan's put the camera away now. You know, it's the standing with the hands on the head. I'll quickly move out of that position again. Um, it's a posturing. It's saying, I'm going to be in charge now. It's a declaration that the servant of his mother's rival is now his. That the past is gone. And he, Reuben, is going to be the one that takes control. He is the firstborn. And that's it, isn't it? One of the things that we see in this passage is where control in society is and whether we model God's way of rule and call or whether we go the world's way and expect people in a certain order to rise to a position because they're the oldest, because they're the one that's had the most experience, the one that's been around a long time. Jacob was not the firstborn. He cheated the birthright. And yet he's the one that's called by God we, before he does the cheat. 
God has told Rebecca that would be the one of them, the younger one, would be served by the older. Rachel was the one that he should have married, but he wasn't allowed to marry her by society's rules. And so we have the full thing going on, marrying Leah after seven years' work, and then having a week with Leah before he marries Rachel. Reuben is the firstborn. He thinks he's the one that should have the power. He thinks that's it, that's a bit past it now. He's going a bit doolally. He's not in control anymore. He's preoccupied by the death of that wife. I'm going to take charge. He takes his power and abuses it. God calls us to live a different way. In Jacob, it's the second child. In other stories, it might be a bit further down the line. David, when he gets anointed, is the eighth son. God does things differently. How often do we try to shape our decisions in our life or in the church's life by society's norms rather than the Spirit's leading? Do we always discern it the right way? Maybe Reuben is right about where Jacob is in his life. Jacob hears about Bilhah and seemingly does nothing. Which was also his uh, reaction about a chapter earlier when his daughter was raped. Is it simply that Bilhah and Dina were not Rachel or a daughter of Rachel. Or perhaps Jacob is getting too old to make wise decisions or decisions in the pace that he's supposed to do it. Either way, the, the lack of discipline, the lack of relationship with those son, uh, sons in a father-son way will lead to Joseph being sold as a slave. Jacob doesn't address his son's behaviour until the reunion with Joseph in Egypt. It's not until he's on his deathbed that he says anything about it at all. He doesn't mention it until years and years have passed. And then at that time, 
he takes the birthright from Reuben. He takes it from the firstborn. And he doesn't give it to the secondborn or the thirdborn. He gives it to the fourth. He gives it to Judah. The second and third had caused other difficulties by their slaughter of the Shechemites. Here, by Reuben's action, and Jacob's eventual reaction, something of the political shape of the future is stirred. When we think of the land around the Middle East and how the kingdom splits into Israel in the north the land in the south is not Reuben's kingdom it's the kingdom of Judah and that's because of this It all stems from this. And Jacob has made a decision that will set things in place far into the future once he eventually makes that decision. But here, Jacob seems to quietly let it slip by. I've used that name Jacob so far tonight. But of course the passage also contains his new name, Israel. Which means he struggles, he strives. This reflects the night that he, he struggled with God. How they, how they wrestled and how... Jacob ends up with a limp. But it also relates to how he struggles throughout his life. And the issues in this passage and much more. It reminds us that on the faithful walk we will not necessarily breeze along. Just because we're in a relationship with God, it doesn't make life easy. Things can and do go wrong. People we love die. We might be victims of crime. Good health might not necessarily be with us. We can be in a close relationship with the Lord and still face these things. And anyone who tells you otherwise is not scripturally sound. The great thing is that we are in that relationship with the Lord 
and he walks with us on that path. The second son, the swindler, Jacob, the striver, Israel, returns to his father Isaac's home. This morning, we heard of the birthright bought with a bowl of lentil stew. And we might be familiar with the, the story that comes a bit after that with uh, animal skins and hairy arms used to trick his father. And of course, we might be familiar with the fact that Jacob has to skip town quickly to avoid his brother. But now he comes home. He returns with independent wealth that was got not with that birthright. Herds not formed from his father's flock. Israel has worked hard. He has strived. And the family is together. And time and changing attitudes have moved everyone on. His faithful father, with a patriarchal old age, dies. And he dies knowing that there is a reconciliation of his sons. And of course we see a similar reconciliation eventually in Jacob's life where father and sons are joined together. And at that time as things are look towards the future as Jacob dies, there is the same turn of phrase as we see related to Isaac. The faithful's death is described as being gathered to his people. There's a sense of that great cloud of witnesses, the, the, saint, the saints in the presence of God, that we see in Hebrews 12. Esau and Jacob bury Isaac. Look at how that is recorded. Esau and Jacob buried him. Which name's coming first? Esau. This is written by not Esau's descendants, but Jacob's descendants. It is Jacob's family telling the story. But here they order things in a way that we hear the firstborns 
name first, showing that reconciliation has really taken place. Esau, then Jacob, peace has been made, order restored. As the future story further evolves, it's seen that God's purpose is more focused on the younger Israel. Just as it had been promised in our morning reading. May we, in our lives, whatever we think of our place in society, whatever others think is our calling, may we seek in peace to honour God's name and to show his love for the world.